This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of September 14th, 2015, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 243 of Defender Radio. Millions of our homes, at least half of all of those in Canada, are shared with a four-legged friend. As a nation, we spend billions of dollars on our pets, and most of us consider our larger pets, dogs and cats, to be members of the family. Despite this, there are a lot of gaps in legislation protecting our pets, including how we train them. One highly controversial method of dog training includes e-collars, more commonly known as shock collars. Though there is no existing legislation or even consensus among retailers and trainers, there is strong opposition to the use of shock collars from some heavy hitters. And this week, we got to hear what they had to say. The couple behind BanshockCollars.ca, Gwendy and Alfie Williams, joined us to share their tale of discovery about these devices, as well as what they've done in recent years to try and advocate against the use of shock collars. We were also fortunate to hear from renowned trainer, behaviorist, and best-selling author Jean Donaldson, who shared her views on the evolution of dog training and the modern use of aversive devices. Let's get started. The fur bears were introduced to the Williams and BanshockCollars.ca by our friends at the Lush Charity Pot Program, who have assisted the couple with funding for their campaigns. Gwendy and Alfie intend to bring an end to the use of shock collars through advocacy, petitioning, and, ultimately, an outright ban. They spent some time with us sharing their story and why they are so passionate about the shocking truth. Why don't we talk a bit about uh, the two of you? Where where did uh, your your interest in um, you know, in dog training in uh, the tools being used, etc. Where does all of that come from for you guys? Well, first off, let's just be clear: we're not dog owners. Uh, we're not dog trainers. Um, we we're not vets. We are dog owners and have been for decades. Um, and where this came about was we actually witnessed a shock collar trainer at the side of the road shocking his own dog in order to demonstrate his shock collar to make a sale to a potential client who was a lady standing there with a little puppy in her arms. And it was probably one of the most disturbing things I've seen. We heard about him uh, from dog walkers in the neighborhood that this guy was this horrible guy with shocking little puppies but you know until you actually see it happening and to think that he was shocking his own dog dog in order to make a sale that left both of us quite upset and it it kind of sat with us for a few months we called the SPCA hoping they could do something about it they basically said they could do nothing because it was legal and trying to prove that it was animal cruelty was almost impossible. So that left us with either to forget about it or to try and do something about it. And clearly you've decided to uh, to try and do something about it. Um, so uh, you've got uh, uh, two websites, I believe. It's banshockcollars.ca um, and the uh, second one is... Uh, petcollarawareness.com. So why did you decide to kind of go into this direction of advocacy uh, to try and show people 
what the problem was and, and provide potential solutions? Well, my wife was probably uh, more into it than I was at the beginning. Um, I, I, uh, I can go on playing golf, going to work and <laughs> kind of, you know, pretend it's not happening, but it, it bothered her and it, it stayed with her every day. So finally uh, we sat down together and said, so, so what could we do? Like what, uh, in the face of something like this, uh, it's not illegal. Um, it's a, it's a huge issue. We, 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 we had never seen them before that day, which kind of heard about them, but didn't really. And then we started looking into it and realized that in Burnaby, seven of the eight pet stores in our neighborhood sold them. Canadian Tire was selling them. PetSmart was selling them. They were prevalent in the U.S. everywhere. And it seemed like a very overwhelming thing. Like, how can you fight against something like that? And so uh, my wife said, listen, we need to start educating people. So we thought, okay, let's create a website and let's gather together everything we can find um, on the subject and organize it for people. Then um, I don't know which one of us got the idea that we should start petitioning and that that would be a good vehicle uh, to get us out there in the public um, gathering actual heart signatures, which you need in Canada, and and get us talking to people. So, uh, and funny enough, eight eight nine years ago, there really wasn't a whole lot on the internet <laughs> about shock collars. There was a a group in the states that that uh, called themselves the truly dog friendly uh, trainers, which we kind of they they didn't believe in the word ban or maybe I shouldn't say that because it was one particular person that said we'll never get anywhere using such radical language um, and we looked around we, we saw an open letter from Karen overall uh, which she is now our hero because she actually had the guts to stand out and say they're cruel they're designed to to create pain. I mean, not many tools on the market are just specifically to create pain so you can get your own way. And that's exactly what they do. Um, so she's a, a dog psychologist and, and trainer that basically spoke out. And then we, as we went along, I believe whales banned them and we started getting more encouragement like, hey, maybe this is, <laughs> there is a possibility here we could actually have some impact on this. Because the bottom line is they've been marketed with no pushback at all, particularly in Canada anyway. Literally nobody was saying, you know what, what you're hearing from pet stores, from manufacturers, from trainers that promote these things is the bottom line is that they're not telling you the truth. They're telling you they're safe. They're telling you they're humane. And they're telling you that they're acceptable and they're not. These are, are things that they've been getting away with and nobody's ever really come out organized-wise and, and told them otherwise. Well, and what's surprising to me, um, again, I, I too, you know, have known people who have used shock collars. I've seen them being used and they never really hit me one way or the other. Now, obviously, I know a lot more about animals than I did uh, in my youth. Um, and I, I believe it's quite clear that these are unnecessary and potentially dangerous. But what truly surprised me uh, on your website, you have um, uh, a section called collar damage and you you label it graphic, thankfully. So I was, I was prepared. Um, but it, it really is uh, uh incredible how much damage these devices which as you noted you can go into even canadian tire and buy these things um 
and and now there there's you know an increased number of uh, studies coming out about it, and not just about the shock collars themselves, but about the entire training premise behind them. Um, now, to you, is it more likely that you will be able to affect a, a, a policy change at one of our, our levels of government regarding these, or that you will change the attitude about these colleges, or, or is it really a combination of both that you're hoping to see? Uh, actually, we're working towards a combination of both, uh, but I think where we might uh, get more immediate success is uh, is legislatively. Um, um, NDP member uh, Kennedy Stewart introduced a private member's bill uh, last year, Bill C-615, which would amend the criminal code. Uh, just one line, it would add uh, shock collars, the word shock collars, under the definition of cruelty to animals. And that would effectively, I think it would ban them. Um, it would certainly slow them down. It's kind of what Wales has done. Um, and so that, that's that's the, the thing that we're pushing for the hardest. And while we're pushing for that, we're educating as we go, because a lot of people approach us and ask, you know, why? The, the idea that they are, the, the fact that they are available on the Internet, in stores, in your corner store, tells pet owners that these things are benign. They're okay. They're acceptable. And they're not. They're dangerous. They're painful. They're, they scar animals, you know, physically, psychologically, emotionally. These are the kinds of, uh, of damage that the average pet owner doesn't see. It happen, it, but it's, it's there. Uh, the anxiety, the fear. Um, some dogs become very aggressive due to these. And these are all things that are not chalked up to the shock collar, mind you. Some, sometimes they just don't understand why their dogs are acting out. Often these dogs end up in rescues for somebody else to take over and, and try to, to uh, fix. We, we've talked to a lot of trainers, um, and asked them, have you ever seen or been given a dog that's been trained with a shock collar that you've had to, uh, quote, rehabilitate unquote and uh, every uh, positive trainer that we've talked to uh, gets quite passionate about it they've there's uh, they've they all have a number that they've been given you know um, yeah they've seen one after the other with some shock collar trainers the way they'll put it got a hold of this dog and then made the situation worse I must tell you this particular rescue this lady from the rescue came to us and we have a booth we do, we do pet shows and expos that kind of thing and she came up to us and she said I've got to tell you about the dog that we we got in she said uh, we rescued this dog and he had been um, trained or, or uh, either had a shock collar on him continuously. They didn't know what kind of background. All she knew was that when she was in the living room, she would pick up the TV remote. The dog would immediately sink to the ground. He would be on his belly crawling around the perimeter of the room trying to find an escape. I mean, he was that badly scarred by the experience. These these collars could drop 200-pound men. You can see them on YouTube videos everywhere. They're not some little tickle or tap as the manufacturers like to brand the, the, the uh, pain. These are very powerful tools that could just devastate animals. Now, what, what do you say to the people who, uh, and please, please forgive me my preamble with you. I told you I, I have many dogs and I, and I disagree with the use of these. Uh, but mm -hmm. part of my job is being the devil's advocate and getting yelled at by yep. lovely people. 
Um, go, go ahead. <laughs> what do you say to the people who say, I had an aggressive dog, I use this, and it works? Um, the, it's the people who, who truly believe that they have seen a positive net from the use of a shock collar. Um, you know, that's, I, I don't, I often, I'm not quite sure where to start with a situ- with a, with that question. Yeah, you can get a result from a shock collar and nobody's denied that. Um, like to me, the question is, are you doing it in the most humane and positive way possible and getting a long lasting result? Um, are there alternatives? Is the shock collar the only way to go? Uh, and it's not. Uh, and what side effects do you have? Well, um, the research says that uh, you can definitely damage the bond between uh, owner and dog by using aversives, not just shock collars, but aversives in general, a shock collar being an aversive, right? Um, I can use a stick and I can beat my dog into doing what I want it to do. That works too. <laughs> but but is that does that give me the result that I'm happy with? Uh, or the right to do that to another sentient being? Some dogs have a strong enough personality that they they deal with the way uh, they're trained using aversives, uh, and and they're not overtly damaged or, or um, obviously damaged by it. Uh, but many dogs aren't. So to me, it's a gamble. Why would I even take that gamble if I've got uh, a safe alternative? I wouldn't go down that road. Yeah, you typically need a great deal of support, and I think um, it, it is pretty clear that most Canadians see their companion animals, cats, dogs, uh, down to hamsters, gerbils, as members of their family who deserve the same protection that they would give to the human members of their family. Absolutely. You should yeah. see the face of horse and cat owners when uh, when they say something and I say, well, they make shock collars for horses and cats too, and they, they absolutely lose it. You are kidding. What would you do? With Why? a cat, with a shock collar, <laughs> you know. You, uh, but yeah, they make them for for cats and horses, not just dogs. And I, I just want to make one more point. Just to, shock collar trainers in the U.S. regularly recommend using two collars on the, on the dog, one in the front, one in the back. And and yeah. on most collars, they have a continuous button, and uh, they recommend one very um, well-known shock trainer in the United States uh, recommends to the average public, the general public, that don't be afraid. I hear too often that people are afraid to use the continuous button and that would... <laughs> That actually keeps the, the shock going on the dog. Uh, shocks confuse dogs, uh, it's p- particularly when they come out of nowhere. So you can imagine what that would feel like. And you're asked to do something and you're trying to think and you're trying to figure out what the, the, uh, the shocker wants. It can be a pretty trying experience for a dog. Absolutely. And I've heard, um, from some of my friends who are trainers, uh, and behavior experts, some, alarming stories about people um and not necessarily with shock collars but with that same correction slash aversion style of training who are suddenly terrified of lamp posts because when they were pulling on leash and got a correction they were looking at the lamp post yeah it's cor- and in yeah. their minds they have correlated the the aversion with the posts not with what they were doing at the time exactly association and that is where the electric fence is a real 
issue with uh with pet owners uh they a dog is out left out in the yard and some little kid goes by maybe on a daily basis on their walk to school and every time that dog goes to greet the kid or goes by to sniff and gets a shock you could bet well, I wouldn't want to bet on how that dog would react to that child when he was actually free and in a park one day and passing that kid. Um, they, there's all kinds of stories like that, and you'll find them on our website as well, of dogs just associating um, other things with, with the shock. To learn more, visit banshockcollars.ca. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. First, they tear a hole in your roof. Then they get in, destroying your insulation, chewing your electrical wiring. Raccoons and squirrels are eating away at your biggest investment, your home. I am Brad Gates of Gates Wildlife Control. Don't wait any longer. Call Gates Wildlife Control. We'll humanely get them out and keep them out. We will come to your house and provide you with a no-obligation free estimate. Please visit us at gateswildlifecontrol.com or call 416 416- Seven five zero nine four five three. Have you ever heard a coyote sing? Did you know that coyotes are also called North America song dogs? They communicate through unique howls, yips, and barks. At Coyote Watch Canada, we're committed to fostering peaceful coexistence for communities and their wildlife neighbors by building compassionate wildlife communities one community at a time. Please visit us at coyotewatchcanada.com for more information and tips about this amazing keystone species. Beaver dams help clean water, promote songbird diversity, encourage fish populations, and create better soil and a cleaner environment. Beavers are good for Canada, but will we be good to them? Find out more at furbearerdefenders.com and give a damn about beavers. This is Defender Radio. In any conversation about the science of dog behavior or training, Jean Donaldson has a place. Known for her best-selling books as well as her popular Academy for Dog Trainers, Jean is recognized as a leader in science-based, compassionate training. We were fortunate to be joined by Jean, who talked the evolution of training, the ideals behind those changes, and why positive, compassionate techniques work. You and I were talking the other day about how, in even as recently as the 1940s and 1950s, so when my, my parents had been children and had dogs, you didn't really train them per se. You gave them food that you get at the butcher's store, um, uh, maybe at the farm feed outlet, depending on where you were. And you'd kind of let the dog do their own thing, maybe teach them how to sit and wave at you. Uh, but, you know, pretty much out in the morning, back at night, just like a kid would be. But things started changing around that time. So what was it that started this? I mean, after 14,000 years of, of mutual evolution, yeah. why did we all of a sudden enter a realm where things were changing more rapidly for, for dogs and people. It's hard to know why. I mean, we sort of know the, what happened, which is after World War II, 
was sort of the baby boom and the the you know deep migration into the suburbs lots of people with family dogs who previously as you say kind of just muddled along and and just did what their parents did and there was not like any formal no you didn't go to dog class suddenly there were these dog classes suddenly you could take the family dog to a class offered by people who whose qualification was that they had done AKC or equivalent competitive obedience um, and you'd go and everybody would sort of be in a line and you'd you know heel around the room with your family dog um, and that was sort of the the first time we see that and the methods handed down to these early um, obedience trainers of family dogs were uh, generally speaking Po, you know, uh, war trainers, uh, military type trainers, or military style trainers, um, and so their methods were really, really kind of harsh. Basically, jerking dogs around on chains, um, which you know you could argue that you know it, it served as a a filter, you know, for dogs that would be hard enough to withstand uh, you know the conditions of battle. You could now, in retrospect, think, well, you know, do we want to be weeding out the soft dogs, you know, when it comes to family pets? Do we want that kind of trial by fire? Um, and certainly now we know that it's not necessary to do that. Um, but at the time, it, you know, suddenly there was, it became a thing to go to dog class. And then a bunch of books sort of appeared all sort of along the same theme, which is that you have to keep your dog in line. Um, you've got to, you know, train him. You've got to do this, that, and the other thing. And, and it should be done formally rather than informally. Well, and that really matches what was going on in the world as a whole, really. I mean, that's you start to see the formation of more team sports for children. Yeah. Uh, uh, formal education starts changing. But also, not long after that, I'd say probably in the 1960s, 1970s, uh, particularly in the Western world, our way of thinking really started to change just right across the board and then entered some of these more modern thinkers. Uh, um, and I, I, the top of my head, the first one that comes to mind is very obvious, Ian Dunbar. Yeah. Um, what do you think sort of led to this, this next gen after what was clearly effective? Uh, you know, your dog learned how to heal. Your dog learned how to sit. So why did we evolve past that, that effective training, as simplistic as it was, into this new way of thinking? I think there's a couple of threads. I mean, certainly there's, as all, with all kind of social movements, I mean, there are sort of leaders. I mean, there are people who sort of led the charge and paved the way and all that kind of stuff. I mean, if you look at the broader societal trends, we've also got sort of you know, quasi-revolutions in child rearing, you know, a la Dr. Spock, who's suddenly saying, you know, it's not enough, it's not okay to just, you know, beat your kids in, into submission, you know. Um, so there are sort of changes, there's sort of a, a dawning awareness that there, there's this thing of individual rights, you know, we're sort of post-suffragette, we're post sort of the first wave of civil rights and so on. Um, and so I think there was sort of, you know, a societal poisonness to be ready to to accept this and so along comes um you know in the in the 70s and 80s uh people like ian dunbar and karen pryor now whatever you know uh, however abhorrent it is to think about marine mammals in captivity and whatever you might think of sort of the the commercial enterprise that you know came in her wake her book um and her sort of 
uh, translation of the work of Skinner and so on to um, sort of a, uh, you know, pet dog owners uh, is is seminal. It's really important. And, and then along comes Dunbar, who's a veterinarian and who's done work in ethology and in, in dog behavior. And, and his very famous phrase was that he went very innocently into an obedience class with his dog. And I think this was the late 1970s. Uh, and he was told uh, to, you know, walk around in, in the block healing kind of formation and tug on his dog, which was a Malamute, which of course didn't take well to that style of training. And he said that, you know, you were being asked to force a pattern um, to a dog who, who had just no idea even what the behavior was. And he said this was too stupid for words. So he came at it partly from an ethical point of view, but he also came at it from a technical point of view, which is that, I mean, to say that it was working is really being pretty generous um, because it was working in at a very great price. It was working on those types of dogs which, you know, were at the time labeled biddable. In other words, they were kind of the quote-unquote good dogs. Uh, the dogs that could withstand that kind of training, um, you know, kind of apologetically rather than biting you. I mean, there's plenty of types of dog and plenty of animals, of course, including exotic species, where if you try that kind of shit, you get you get bitten, you get attacked, or, or the animal just turns around and goes into open flight. Um, and so, you know, the dirty little secret of dog training was, yeah, you could do that stuff with your poodles and your Shelties and your Border Collies and stuff, but, you know, go ahead and try it with a Sheba or a Malamute or whatever, and you may get a very different reply. Um, and so all these threads came together of we had now access, you know, because of the work of uh, Skinner and then his intellectual descendants, um, you know, the, the Baileys, um, the Brellens, uh, the grads, his grad Skinners and then the Karen Pryors and the Ian Dunbars. We had all sort of the technical know-how there if only we would access it. And we also had the social movement of, well, you know, is it okay to do that to dogs? Uh, and I think those things came together um, and, you know, started the dawn of this, this happily, this, this new age of, of dog training. And um, it it has become very widespread. I think you were very much more likely these days, at least in, you know, where I live in southern Ontario and probably where you live in California, uh, you're more likely to come across positive reinforcement-based trainers. So there's, there's all kinds of gray areas and this and that in between. Yeah. It's still legal, you know, and, and here's the thing is, is a lot of the trainers who are still doing the, the old-fashioned stuff are – now aware that they need to market it differently. So they, you know, we're starting to get all this cloaking and euphemism. Um, and, you know, the laws haven't changed everywhere. The laws are starting to change. Um, and so, you know, I would think that in our lifetime, we're going to probably see a lot of this stuff made illegal. And that's it's certainly a positive step forward, especially when we consider that I, I personally believe the welfare of animals, uh, companion animals, kind of yeah. leads the way for other welfare issues. Right. I, that's a, such a good point because if we, if the the animals that we literally will label members of our family and throw veterinary care at and, and so on and sleep in our beds, if we can't sort of see their welfare in a clear way where we you know, see that, well, it really isn't okay to strangle them, to shock them, to, to to pin them to the ground and to use fear and intimidation that we want to think about their nature. What hope is there for factory farm animals? What hope is there for fur bearers? What hope is there for the, 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 the rest of the natural world? 
Absolutely. Um, now, uh, you mentioned something uh, um, that I, I want to touch on, and that is the uh, um, the shock callers. That's something that we're obviously on this episode, as you know, going to be, uh, we have gotten into now. And one of the things, I, when I was talking about this with, with my partner, who, who, as you know, is much smarter than me, um, <laughs> she, she mentioned um, the need to understand uh, uh, stress signs. And that's something I, I've read about in your books and I've read about in other animals. And I actually recently read a study about with bears, but we don't necessarily know when an animal is stressed or, or in pain or suffering because not all dogs are going to respond by whimpering and shaking and cowing. Yeah. Um, so how do we tell if, if a dog or, or an animal who is unable to communicate to us in our language yeah. um, or with obvious signals that are that we can correctly interpret, how do we know? that this is not good for them? Well, that, that's a really good question. Um, and part of it is that we know more than, I think, you know, those who would want to, want to you know, sort of put dust into the air would like us to know, which is that there are, there are signs of stress and that the average dog owner can be taught to see them. So with a very simple you know, basic education in dog body language, somebody who previously, you know, did something like watch the dog whisper and think it was tremendous, well, watch the dog whisper now with, with great abhorrence and say, oh my God, I can't believe those dogs, they're, they're, they, they look like, you know, the, like shell shock victims. Um, and so there is sort of some education that can be had. In terms of sort of the, the, the more subtle stuff where it really isn't clear, I think we our due diligence demands that we infer that an animal receiving electric shock or being strangled with a chain um, and that its behavior is being affected. In other words, the tool is having its desired result insofar as it's functioning effectively to deter behavior or to increase behavior by its termination and so on, that we can put those puzzle pieces together and say, okay, if you've got a mammal with a similar nervous system to ours and you're electrically shocking it, and the result of that is that the dog is retrieving the hunting dummy or it's you know stopping barking or what have you, it's a reasonable inference to say that animal, it, that's hurting that animal. Uh, and it's also then therefore reasonable to say, have we got other recourse if we wanted to change that behavior? Or is that a behavior that's worth changing, et cetera? Is, do we have the right to do that? That it's a reasonable conclusion to say, that's not okay. Now, I'm going to, to, to play devil's advocate. As you know, that's one of my favorite things to do. Um, yeah. I get given the stink eye if I don't put away the dishes after washing them <laughs> or, you know, I, I, I do not get to do something I enjoy if I am not uh, uh, doing things I said I would do. Um, Which I, is I, an excellent, not... It's an excellent use of contingencies by Kate, by the way. <laughs> well, no, but that's what I'm asking is uh, it, it is the removal. So this, this would be obviously not quite the same, but it's the removal of something desired or yeah. the delivery of something not desired. Um, so, like, is this a, an oversimplification on my part, or is there a correlation between saying, if you don't you're do this, the, I'm going to punish you somehow? You're, you're getting at the question, which is, okay, so what, what are 
ethically and morally defensible ways that we can mold behavior so that dogs can fit in better to our world? Or what are ethically and morally uh, um, you know, acceptable ways that Kate can modify your, and legally, you know, acceptable ways that Kate can <laughs> modify your base so she better fits in, so you better fit into the house. And, you know, so saying that, you know, she's, she sort of gives you a stink eye um, or, um, you know, withholds or grants stuff that you want is one thing. To commit aggravated assault, okay, would be another, you know, and what we're talking about in dog training really is the dispensing and removing contingently of rewards, okay, with the attendant emotions of yippee or disappointment or frustration versus making you fear for life and limb, which is what stimuli called aversives do, which is why our laws distinguish between her saying no cake, no nookie nookie later, etc., versus she's not allowed to use electrodes on you. Okay, well, that we won't get into my private life. Oh boy, did I open a can there? No, we're, 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 we are steaming forward and not getting into this. I'm going to get in yeah. so much trouble. But anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> that's aversion conditioning right there. So, um, one of the other things that that is important, though, and this is something that you're doing as we talk about this, is the terminology. So you're talking about aggravated assault, about choking with a chain, about shocking with electricity. Right. But the people who are proponents of these activities call them corrections or interruptions. So here's the thing is, you know, there have been efforts by the other side to do everything from use these euphemisms, call it corrections, say that there's no other way. Um, attempts to reframe the argument to point out that this, you know, the side of people who would like to get rid of these tools, that they sometimes can be tedious, they can be overzealous, um, that, that sometimes positive reinforcement trainers are incompetent, and all that is true. But it, it really is a deflection from uh, the central issue, which is that these people are really attempting to defend the indefensible and what will be viewed in sort of the fullness of history in the same kind of light as we look back now on, you know, the suffragette movements or the abol- abolitionist movements or, or, you know, the child labor laws, you know, or hanging children for petty theft and so on, that this, this kind of moral progress, when we look back, you know, nobody goes tut, tut, sometimes the suffragettes were a little bit strident. You know, uh, or sometimes, you know, they, 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 you know, got their, their arguments sort of a bit mis- mixed up. They were on the right side of an obvious issue. And this use of pain, force, intimidation, strangulation, coercion, electric shock, and so on in dog training is an obvious issue. And so the question becomes, those who are defending it, what is, what's going on there? You know, and I think that this is where we need to partly, you know, keep the arguments really clear. And, and, and if you think about it, the amazing thing is that we can sit here in, in, in kind of a measured and, and reasonable way, you know, be restrained in, in our language about it. So here we are on a podcast, you know, talking about this without saying, oh, my God, this is at these people should be just, you know, you know, the law should be brought against them. That anybody can can really be restrained is actually the amazing thing in light of what these people are doing, which is elective use of stuff that is absolutely abhorrent uh, and and you know and and that's something that needs to be said and i worry that sometimes people fall for the you know the, the the attempts to obfuscate that point by 
you know, all these other deflection techniques. Well, and would you, though, not agree that context has to play a role in this? Um, and something, um, and I'll give you the the example I'm thinking of, and I also want to uh, mention something else. A, a good friend of mine, Yvette Van Veen, who is a, a, a trainer, behaviorist, a columnist, she's used the analogy of, if my child was reaching for an electrical outlet, I'd smack his hand away. And I'd do it again. But then I start asking, why is he continuing to repeat that behavior? So Yeah. The other thing is, what if you if you've got a small child, you may want to do things like have the electrical outlets covered. Yes. And I and that goes in uh, uh to save everyone time. Here, yeah. Into the, the whole concept of don't set up the dog to fail. But right. what about situations? And again, talking context where and I'm gonna hit you with two. One, it is a truly mild shock. So I think of, um, you know, when I had uh, uh, knee problems as a teenager and I got those muscle uh, building shocks, it doesn't hurt at all, but it stimulates the muscle to move. Would those shocks have deterred you from, you know, eating cake? Would they deter, have deterred you from driving your car? Would they have had an effect on your behavior? Maybe. <laughs> in other words, so they did hurt. So they hurt enough to do. So they hurt enough that you would you would perform work to avoid okay. them. I see where you're going. So in order for it to be effective, it has to be powerful enough to cause fear or pain. Well, of course. I mean, we're not talking about stuff that the animal doesn't perceive. It really is kind of like saying, "Well, you know, what choke chain is basically a necklace. You wear necklaces, don't yeah. you?" You know, that, that argument at, you know, to the absurd is, you know, well, you know, you, you can certainly, you know, electricity is a good thing. You know, an electric shock that, as you say, that, that will stimulate muscles that don't hurt you are a good thing. But we're not talking about that, are we? We're talking about the kind of electricity that motivates animals away from doing behaviors that they really want to do. So by definite end, that makes a good many of them scream, you know, et cetera, become fearful is it not a reasonable inference to say that that's not okay? Next contextual question. Um, one that, and this is one that I have heard frequently, uh, and, and it actually comes in line um, regularly, and I, I'm quite sure you have heard it too, with people who use force training really of any kind, that it's necessary because this dog does not respond to positive reinforcement, does not respond. That's a that's a competence issue. They, they those people then need to account for the many thousands, uh, probably tens of thousands, of trainers, behaviorists, veterinary behaviorists out there getting the job done on a daily basis over decades without those tools. How do they account for that? These tools are elective. That argument really is done. They can try and say that I don't know what else to do. Okay, it really is kind of like that. You've probably heard the the you know the the conservationist argument. This this guy that shot the lion, um, saying, "Well, you know, I'm doing it for conservation rather than giving his ten or twenty grand just to a you know conservation uh, you know thing." And David Attenborough was came across my newsfeed this morning, and he makes a really good point uh, about that, which is that. You know, these people are, are, they may say that it's about, that they're trying to be conservationists, but that doesn't remove the fact that they're paying huge amounts of money because they want to kill something. Um, and that we really need to, to think about that and not put that to the side, that these people are motivated to want to kill something. What's that about? And, and Attenborough's 
hypothesis is that these people they want power. Um, he he refers to, uh, you know, uh, uh, I think there was a story where some rogue bull elephant needed to be euthanized. I think at some zoo, um, and then there were people who were just you know wanting to pay money so that they could just take the kill shot. So in other words, there was not going to be any even remote you know, possible argument vis-a-vis conservation, but people want to just be the one to take that kill shot. And that's, again, you know, and he, he was saying that, you know, this is a psychiatric thing. We need, we need psychologists tr- getting in here to help us understand what it is about people that motivates them, really motivates them to, to do this to animals. And then, of course, afterwards, come up with these intellectualizations about how, well, there's no other choice and I'm doing this and it's this or it's death and, and all these arguments. When, in fact, these people, and I'm, I'm, I'm floating the idea that maybe it's something to do with power, that for some reason they find it a reinforcing event to, to do that to a dog. Um, and so this is, you know, it's beyond my pay grade. I don't know about yours, but, you know, what is it that motivates people to find it reinforcing to watch animals be fearful, to watch animals, you know, f- experience that jolt of physical pain? Why do they like that? Well, and it's interesting because... I think you, you, in order to ask that question of someone, you first must break down that barrier of, well, this works or this is the way it's always been. And to, to me, that's, yeah, that's, 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 their, that's their intellectualization. I mean, you know, there, people who used to, I mean, it used to be that, you know, as provided you use the right size of stick, you could beat your wife, etc. Um, it was okay to, to hit children, provided you didn't leave marks that were beyond a certain size. And, you know, and we now look back on that and say, whoa, that's just crazy. You know, and at the time, I'm sure those, the, 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 you know, the ones who would promote that would say, well, I've got to because it really is kind of like saying, you know, at what point, it, you know, once you've exhausted all reasonable means, at what point is it okay to batter your spouse? You know, at what what's the reasonable point? And, and, and it's just, it's, it's an absurd discussion. Um, what you have to look at is, what's the pathology driving the batterer? And, you know, so you come at it legally and you say, we as a society understand it's not okay to do that. You know, it's just, it's just not okay, period. The next question is, okay, even though it's illegal, people will still do it. So we also want to come at it from a compassionate viewpoint and say, what is it in people that they, they feel the need to do this? And, and to have the batterer lay out their psyche, you know, say, well, I have to because, you know, she burned the eggs, she wouldn't listen, she pushing my buttons, she, you know, whatever – is it you know maybe that could be part of the therapy, but really is okay. So what happened to that person? And I think that's where the discussion needs to go if we're really going to advance the runner here. Gene, I just want to eat cake. <laughs> and you're making that way more complicated than it should be. Oh, I would never make eating cake complicated, Michael. And and the final thing to ask you uh, is the conversation that has to follow. Um, and this is the kind of thing where people can be great friends in the second you bring up dog training. Um, it, it, it just turns ugly. So what what do you recommend? And again, as someone who deals with this literally on a day-to-day basis, how do you recommend? You know, if my my friend is using a shot collar or my, my sister is, is using citronella or a prong collar, how do you broach that without alienated. I don't know. That, that's, imp- I mean, what, as clear as it is, sort of the, the, the issue of trying to 
dictate to friends and family members how to deal with their children, spouses, dogs, relationships, etc., is fraught. Um, it, you know, I don't know about you, but I've had, you know, zero success over in my lifetime trying to convince my family members to do anything. I mean, it's just, you know, people are free agents. I think if you're careful and tactful and you get an opening, you might do it. Um, uh, I, you know, I think that over the broader, I'm not sure that the responsibility you know, always needs to be on the individual to try and wade into those waters. I think if an opportunity presents itself, you know, you can tactfully say something like, you know, you're aware that there are, there are other ways to do this. And, but here's the thing is they may not have access to the competent other ways. Um, and so that is, you know, uh, I think something where you're kind of between a rock and a hard place. To learn more about Gene's work, visit academyfordogtrainers.com. That's the show for this week, folks. I'd like to thank our guests, as well as Brad Gates of AAA Gates Wildlife Control for his ongoing support. Until next time, this is Michael Howie reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.